I think you're spending way too much time reading between the lines. Does I'm not reading between the lines. Anybody, I'm reading the lines. Anyone... Yeah, you don't have to be a genius to understand what's going on here, do you? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Even on Fox News, I they get it. I got a feeling there's something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego. 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake, California. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on Public Reality Radio, WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from Bradblog.com, delighted that you can join us today. All right, coming up momentarily, we will be joined once again by Marilyn Marks of the Coalition of Good Governance. It's been a while, fresh off her uh, pretty remarkable two-day marathon hearing in her long-running federal lawsuit to force the state of Georgia to move from 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems to hand-marked paper ballots. That after a litany of election debacles in the state of Georgia. And as the Peach State itself is now planning to move to an all new 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen computer ballot marking device for the 2020 presidential elections. What could possibly go wrong, Desi Doyen? (laughs) Throwing good money after even worse money. Yeah, no kidding. So, and Georgia is not the only one to do that. There is a bunch of jurisdictions around the country, despite the repeated insistence of cybersecurity and voting systems experts uh, to move to hand-marked paper ballots instead of these unverifiable BMD systems. Uh, But there were some pretty amazing details to come out during the hearings in Atlanta in federal court on Thursday and Friday related to the destruction of evidence by the state of Georgia and new evidence that Georgia and its Republican former Secretary of State, now Governor Brian Kemp, has been lying to the federal court about the state's voting systems. And if my sources here are correct... A remarkable revelation about who actually programs the ballots for the entire state of Georgia also 
came out during that uh, hearing on Thursday and Friday last week. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, as readers of Bradblog.com know, on Sundays at the Bradblog, we uh, we post some of the best political cartoons of the of the past week, as selected by the great Perry Dorrell, better known on the internets as P. Diddy of Brains, uh, the blog Brains and Eggs. One of his tunes this week included the Dictionary.com definition of the phrase stochastic terrorism, defined as the public demonization of a person or group resulting in the incitement of a violent act, which is statistically probable but whose specifics cannot be predicted. For example, the sentence, the lone wolf attack was apparently influenced by the rhetoric of stochastic terrorism. So that Dictionary.com definition is in the cartoon right next to a news item which says, Lawyers say Trump rhetoric inspired the MAGA bomber to mail bombs to Trump's political enemies. You remember the MAGA bomber from last year, I think it was, who had sent all sorts of pipe bombs to uh, to to CNN, to to media outlets, to Democrats in Congress, and right. other people perceived to be ev- uh, enemies of Trump's. He was the one with the crazy van covered in stickers right. and weird stuff. That's that one, right? And uh, his trial is now ongoing, I believe, and and thankfully none of those pipe bombs went off, but they could have. And it would have caused a lot of damage to people who uh, Donald Trump specifically had been targeting in uh, recent months and years. There's also another news item at the bottom of this cartoon, which is uh, the most troubling coming after everything else in this tune. It says Trump demonizes the squad again. Omar AOC threatened. So sort of a chilling end to that uh, cartoon. Uh, But as I suspect you already know, that racial demonization of Democratic minority members of Congress continued over the weekend, nonetheless, leading the Baltimore Sun editorial board to write a scathing editorial, which reads in part, Quote, in case anyone missed it, the president of the United States had some choice words to describe Maryland's 7th congressional district on Saturday morning. Here are the key phrases they write, quote, no human being would want to live there. It is a, quote, very dangerous and filthy place, quote, worst in the USA. And our personal favorite, they write, it is, quote, rat and rodent infested mess. They say Donald Trump wasn't really speaking of the 7th District as a whole, which includes a bunch of upscale towns and neighborhoods. No, Donald Trump's wrath was directed at Baltimore and specifically at Congressman Elijah Cummings, the 68-year-old son of a former South Carolina sharecropper who has represented the district in the U.S. House of Representatives since 1996. Trump tweeted, Rep. Elijah Cummings has been a brutal bully, shouting and screaming at the great men and women of Border Patrol about conditions at the southern border when actually his Baltimore district is far worse and more dangerous. The border is clean, efficient and well run, just very crowded. Cumming district is a disgusting rat and rodent infested mess. It's not hard to see what's going on here, the Baltimore Sun writes. The congressman has been a thorn in the president's side, and Mr. Trump sees attacking African-American members of Congress as good politics as it both warms the cockles of the white supremacists who love him 
and causes so many of the thoughtful people who don't to scream. President Trump badmouthed Baltimore in order to make a point that the border camps are clean, efficient, and well-run, which, of course, they are not, unless you are fine with all the overcrowding, squalor, cages, and deprivation to be found in what the Department of Homeland Security's own inspector general recently called, quote, a ticking time bomb. Trump was re- was returning to an old standby of attacking an African-American lawmaker from a majority black district on the most emotional and bigoted of arguments. They write, it was only surprising that there wasn't room for a few classic phrases like you people or welfare queens or crime ridden ghettos or a suggestion that the congressman, quote, go back to where he came from. This, they write, is a president who will happily debase himself at the slightest provocation. And given Mr. Cummings' criticism of U.S. border policy, the various investigations he has launched as chairman of the House Oversight Committee, his willingness to call Mr. Trump a racist for his recent attacks on the freshman congresswoman, and the fact that Fox and Friends had recently aired a segment critical of the city slamming Baltimore must have been irresistible in a Pavlovian way. Fox News rang the bell, the president salivated, and his thumbs moved across his cell phone into action. They uh, conclude by writing, while we would not sink to name-calling in the Trumpian manner or ruefully point out that he failed to spell the congressman's name correctly, We would tell the most dishonest man to ever occupy the Oval Office, the mocker of war heroes, the gleeful grabber of women's private parts and the serial bankruptor of businesses, the useful idiot of Vladimir Putin and the guy who insisted there are, quote, good people among murderous neo-Nazis, that he's still not fooling most Americans into believing he's even slightly competent in his current post or that he possesses a scintilla of integrity. Better to have some vermin living in your neighborhood than to be one. Ouch. Mick Mulvaney, President Trump's, uh, what is he now, a chief? Uh, He's now the White House chief of staff, chief of staff. and also uh, head of the Office of Management and Budget. Actually, I think he's the head of the Office of Managing bu- Manage bu- Budget. I think he's the acting chief of staff in any event. One of those. One of those. In any event, he was on Fox News on Sunday with Chris Wallace, who even called him out for this. You say it has zero to do with race. There is a clear pattern here, Mick. The fact is that before his inaugural... That before his inauguration, the president tweeted about John Lewis, a black congressman, that he should, and this is before his inauguration, he should spend time in his crime-infested district. Then, two weeks ago, he goes after these four members of the squad, all women of color, and says they should go back to the crime-infested countries from which they come. Then he talks about uh, Elijah Cummings, and he says his district is rat and rodent-infested infested. It sounds like vermin. It sounds subhuman. And these are all six members members of Congress who are people of color. I think you're spending way too much time reading between the lines. I'm not reading between the lines. I'm reading the lines. (laughs) Those are the lines. And that is the stochastic terrorism coming out of this White House. So, uh, yeah, it's true. This is all horrible and ugly and terrible and, frankly, traumatizing to the nation. 
who wake up and and hear this sort of thing, see these sort of tweets coming from the president of the United States day in and day out. But it also continues to be damned dangerous as the stochastic terrorism is being heard around the nation and is being acted upon by that MAGA bomber, of course, and others. And now we have this detail just before airtime today. The gunman who killed three people and wounded a dozen more at the Gilroy Garlic Festival in Northern California was an angry 19-year-old who recently waded into the world of white supremacy. The man who was shot dead by police Sunday evening before he could do more damage uh, posted online about an 1890 racist manifesto. The alleged shooter urged his followers to read that book called uh, Might is Right or the Survival of the Fittest, NBC has confirmed. He posted that to his Instagram page. He then used slurs against mixed race people and misogynist descriptions of Silicon Valley workers complaining about, quote, hordes of them overcrowding towns. I don't know if you use the word infested or not, but there you go. The uh, book that was cited by the shooter argued that only strength and violence determined what is morally right. The work, which is filled with misogynistic and anti-Semitic rhetoric, is a staple among neo-Nazis and white supremacists on extremist sites. And the phrase, might is right, is often posted as a sort of motto or catchphrase indicating white supremacy on neo-Nazi extremist forums. This uh, 19-year-old was also apparently no fan of the Garlic Festival, which is a three-day food fair that began in 1979 to celebrate the local garlic industry and which was in walking distance from his home in Gilroy. He uh, his post read, ah, garlic festival time. Come get wasted on overpriced blank stuff. But below that was a post from someone named uh, Fut Boyden, which read, quote, when you get too wasted and accidentally shoot up the festival. Just who that person was remained unclear a day after the nation was left grappling with yet another yet another mass shooting. This one claiming the lives of six year old Stephen Romero a 13-year-old girl and a man in his 20s. The names of those two uh, other victims have not yet been released as we go to air. Investigators also said they were looking into reports that the shooter might have had an accomplice, but said that that had not yet been confirmed. They said the AK-47-style assault rifle that he used was purchased on July 9 in Nevada, where apparently a 19-year-old kid can walk into a store and buy an assault rifle capable of killing hundreds of people in seconds. So, thanks, Nevada. Gilroy Police Chief Scott Smithy said during a press conference, quote, we don't have a motive for the shooting as yet. But, of course, it was another white supremacist-related shooting. Had it been someone with a Muslim-sounding name, uh, even one born in the U.S., Donald Trump would have already announced the, you know, the motive and would have further shut down travel from foreign countries. Had it been an Hispanic-sounding name, he would have called for further shutting down the border. But, you know, it was a white guy, so I expect this story will uh, not be discussed by the White House for much longer. Congressman Dan Lipinski, Democrat from Illinois, said that he and his wife Judy were in the crowd on Sunday when the shots rang out. Uh, he said the shooter was not far from us. We heard the loud pops, which seemed to get closer as we ran. 
The Gilroy Garlic Festival is one of the country's uh, best-known food festivals, has been held for 41 years, draws hundreds of thousands of paying visitors every year, has raised millions of dollars for local charities and other nonprofits over that time. The folks in Gilmore uh, who are now using the hashtag Gilroy Strong say they will not be cowed and they plan to uh, continue the festival next year undeterred. All of which underscores, frankly, the importance of what we all have to do next year. And that is take this country back from the sick, stochastic terrorists who have taken it over, including the stochastic terrorist in chief. But to do that, which frankly should be really easy at this point, but to do that, you know, it would be easy if we had a level playing field in our elections and if we had transparent public oversight of the results of those elections. I see nothing between now and November of 2020 that is more important, frankly, than that. And on that note, let's take a quick break and we will return to Georgia where the fight for, yes, transparent, publicly overseeable election systems heated up again late last week in federal court, where there may be major consequences, not just for the voting system in Georgia, but for the voting systems used in all 50 states. That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. John here, rising up your bow and play your fiddle hard. Cause hell's broke loose in Georgia and the devil deals the cards. And if you win, you get this shiny fiddle made of gold. But if you lose, the devil gets your soul. Well, I'm not saying whose soul the devil may have gotten in Georgia, but yes, we are back to the state that I think we may have covered more closely over the past year than any other in the Union. Yes, we are back to Georgia and the seemingly eternal fight over the state's 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems first installed across the state of Georgia back in 2002 and, yes, still in use today. Despite the system being hacked by independent experts time and time again, one failed election after another on those very systems, and the exposure of the state's entire voter registration database and administrative voting systems passwords discovered online by researchers prior to the 2016 presidential election in Georgia, available for anyone to freely download. These are the same Diebold voting machines used again in the 2018 election last year, as overseen at the time by then-Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp. During his very close reported defeat of popular Democrat Stacey Abrams last November as Kemp ascended to the governorship in the state, now, I say reported victory because uh, it is, as I continue to point out, 100 percent impossible to know if even one vote cast on computer touchscreen systems, as opposed to hand-marked paper ballot systems, actually reflect the intent of any voter. 
Last September, in a federal case against the use of these machines in Georgia, the judge overseeing it expressed grave concerns about the systems, finding them to be, quote, unverifiable. Now, where have I heard that word before? And featuring, quote, serious vulnerabilities, which are, quote, not just a theoretical paranoid notion at this point, unquote. These are also the same unverifiable touchscreen machines on which 127,000 votes inexplicably disappeared, largely in African-American precincts during last November's lieutenant governor's race in Georgia, with the Republican winning that contest by just over 123,000 votes. Well, the case against those machines and new ones that the state is now considering to uh, replace them with That federal case continues to continue, which a marathon uh, two-day hearing in Atlanta last week made clear. According to U.S. District Judge Amy Totenberg, as she provided over the sessions in federal court on Thursday and Friday in that long-running lawsuit, challenging the use of the state's 17-year-old 100% unverifiable Diebold touchscreen direct recording electronic voting systems, The Peach State, according to the judge, allowed its election system to grow, quote, way too old and archaic and now has a deep hole to dig out of to ensure the constitutional right to vote is protected. Judge Totenberg, according to Associated Press, is now in the difficult position of having to decide whether the state, which plans to implement a new voting system statewide next year, must immediately abandon its outdated voting machines in favor of an interim solution for special and municipal elections to be held this fall. We can't sacrifice people's right to vote just because Georgia has left this system in place for 20 years and it's so far behind, said lawyer Bruce Brown. He represents the Coalition for Good Governance and a group of voters. Addressing concerns about an interim system being burdened, uh, being burdensome to implement, plaintiffs' lawyers countered that the state put itself in this situation by neglecting the system for so long and ignoring so many warnings. Another lawyer, David Cross, who represents the group of voters, urged the judge to force the state to take responsibility, saying, quote, you are the last resort. The plaintiffs had asked Totenberg last August to order Georgia to use handmarked paper ballots for last November's midterm elections. While Totenberg expressed grave concerns at the time last year about the vulnerabilities in the voting systems and scolded state officials for being so slow to respond to evidence of those problems, she said a switch to paper ballots so close to the midterm election last year would have been too chaotic. She warned state officials, however, that further delay would be unacceptable. But on Friday, she seemed conflicted at the conclusion of the two-day hearing, noting, quote, these are very difficult issues. I'm going to wrestle with them the best that I can, but these are not simple issues, she said. She also said she wished the state had not let the situation become so dire and wondered what would happen if the state cannot meet its aggressive schedule for implementing the new system in time for the presidential primaries next year. And we've also got some breaking news on that today. I'll get to that shortly. But the request for proposals for that new system specifies that vendors must be able to distribute all voting machine equipment before March 31 of next year. Well, that's nice, except that is a week after 
the state's presidential primary election next year, which is set to be held on March 24. Now, during the hearing on Friday, Alex Halderman, a University of Michigan computer scientist and engineering professor, he testified for the plaintiffs. Halderman was part of the team that originally hacked a Georgia Diebold voting machine years ago after a group that I was working with was able to obtain one of the systems and secretly shared it with the Princeton University Computer Lab back in 2005. At that time, Halderman was still a student at Princeton, but he was key to this particular hack. His group was able to hack into the system and in about 30 seconds, flip every single vote on the machine and implant a virus that could pass itself from machine to machine to flip every other vote in the system as well. He testified on Friday that the state's current election system, the same one that he hacked over a decade ago, but Georgia kept using it anyway, has major vulnerabilities and that the safest, most secure system would be hand-marked paper ballots with optical scanners at each precinct. Four county election officials, however, three of whom will oversee elections this fall, testified that it would be just too difficult to switch to hand-marked paper ballots in time for those municipal elections. That, even though they have been using those very same uh, hand-marked paper ballots for absentee voters for years, and yes, they gave that same argument last year before the midterm elections, that we just don't have time to make this switch. They cited difficulties getting enough equipment as well as challenges to train poll workers and educating voters because how will we possibly be able to explain to voters how to fill in an oval with a pen next to the person you want to vote for? It's impossible. The two groups of plaintiffs in this case believe that the new touchscreen ballot marking devices that the state plans to implement next year for the presidential elections also have many of the same problems as the current unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. And they say they plan to challenge those new systems as well once the state announces which vendor has won the contract. And as I said, we'll have some news on that in a moment. Judge Totenberg has not said when she would rule, but clearly she needs to do so soon for there to be any time for any of the potential remedies here. Joining us now is... Well, one of the troublemakers who brought this case so long ago and who has been gracious enough to join us pretty much every step of the way with updates as the case has proceeded over the last year or two and as the situation continues to get more and more dire in Georgia. Marilyn Marks is a longtime expert advocate for free and fair elections as executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization committed to fair elections, and she has been spearheading this crucial effort to both do away with Georgia's unverifiable touchscreen system while raising awareness about the new touchscreen ballot marking devices being introduced in places like Georgia, Philadelphia, counties in Texas, North Carolina, Ohio, Kansas, and among other places, yes, here in my own home county of Los Angeles, the nation's largest voting jurisdiction, all before the 2020 presidential election. Marilyn Marks, it has been, uh, it seems like it's been a while, so welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you so much, Brad. And by the way, we're yeah. going to do more than just raise awareness on ballot marking devices. Mm -hmm. This lawsuit that we're in the middle of will be the first lawsuit 
to challenge ballot marking devices and to put them out of their misery. We are definitely going to work to see that the ballot marking devices are declared unconstitutional in this case in Georgia. So, wow. so uh, let me let me get that let me get that straight. Actually, Marilyn, so you're saying that because you're in a federal court, you think you may be able to get this judge yes. to say that touchscreen ballot marking devices violate the Constitution and not only cannot be used in Georgia, but also cannot be used anywhere in the country. Well, uh, well. She will start with the district that she mm-hmm. is responsible for, but but yes, then um, exactly what we are going to be asking the court. We have told the, the defendants that we've told that back in April, and um, and and she has said yes. Then um, you'll have to file an amended complaint mm-hmm. when you know exactly what system is going to be chosen by Georgia. And we learned that Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we learned exactly what system is going to be chosen by Georgia. And so we will be shortly filing a challenge to that. She knows it's coming. She seemed extremely skeptical of barcode balloting devices mm-hmm. and does not seem hesitant to want to dig in. And in fact, on Friday afternoon, as she was closing court, Mm-hmm. She did say that she was looking forward to seeing what the state chooses, and she expressed some skepticism at that time about barcode balloting and, and kind of discouraged them from choosing this. Well, that is exactly what they've done now. And yep. so, yes, we will be using this lawsuit to make a federal U.S. constitutional, federal court U.S. Mm-hmm. constitutional challenge to those that is really based in exactly the same thing that we said for the DREs. These are unaccountable, unverifiable, unauditable elections where voters are casting their ballot into a black box. And in in the case of barcodes, Mm -hmm. that is their vote. They they cannot read. You're asking someone to, to cast a vote that he or she cannot read. That's the barcode that is printed on those uh, on those printouts. Now, of course, election yes. officials say, well, it's uh, there's also a human readable version of of the vote, even though we don't tally that we use uh, the optical scanners. Look at those barcodes. There's a human readable uh, version of that. So we can go back and verify later. Uh, I know you have problems with, uh, as do I, by the way, with that uh, so-called human readable uh, printout by the computer as well. That's right, because the human readable portion is not what's being counted. Mm-hmm. And we know from research that is, has been done and right now is being done also at the University of Michigan mm-hmm. that voters do not try to verify for the most part. And even when they try, they for the most part cannot detect it when there are errors introduced into a long ballot. By the computer, which you know, is... it works for... By the computer, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then... Wh- and Go ahead. Well, the bad guys then can know that they can get away with introducing errors that are not going to be caught for the most part. And what drives and me crazy so, about that, Marilyn, is that even if they check the... Even if voters do check those uh, uh, ballots, and even if they get it right, after an election... We can never know if anybody uh, actually checked them or if they got it right if they did. But let me get, since I want to get to right. Georgia's uh, new system in a little bit, I, I want to hit this 
because there's a few really interesting things that have happened over the past few weeks in this case. Now, uh, one of the things that I know you've been fighting for for months, if not years, is to have your independent experts examine some of the touchscreen systems and tabulators that resulted in that surprise win last November by then Republican Secretary of State, now Republican Governor Brian Kemp, and the seeming disappearance of more than 100,000 votes in the lieutenant governor's race, as I mentioned. So I know that you wanted to have your experts look at these systems. You were finally allowed to have such an examination, sort of, in a very short time frame over the past week or two, as I understand it. And what happened was really fascinating. Tell us what happened when the state finally allowed you to look at these systems. All right, Brad. Well, let's let's be clear that we still not had a chance to look at the system or the programming in the voting machines Mm -hmm. or the servers. Mm -hmm. We were, after major, major fight and scores of thousands of dollars in legal cost, uh, we were allowed to look at a database that is used to to program the memory cards. Mm-hmm. Just one tiny piece of the entire election uh, scheme. And um, the bottom line is that there was this huge fight because the state lied to the judge and lied to us and said that this database was its crown jewels of security because it was constructed in a very unique in secret way that no other state had done. Nobody else using Debo had this super secret database mm-hmm. so secured. No one knew of it. They made us examine it in these expensive clean rooms, etc. And we found out that just as we had told the court, their database is just like every other state's database, many of them published on the Internet as public records. So they just found it so convenient to lie to the court in order to keep from to keep anyone from having easy access to see what a mess they're making. And so let me under let me see if I under, understand that and underscore it. What you're saying is Georgia was saying our systems are safe because we have a super secret special version of the Debold software, the Debold database that nobody else has in the, the database, state. Right. Database uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, that nobody could possibly hack because they haven't seen it because none of the other systems out there are like it in any way. And so to even let right. your own experts look at it. Uh, and as I understand, you weren't even allowed to look at it, right? It had to be just... I have not been permitted to look <laughs> at it, right. So, But your experts were able to, as long as they set up a special room in Michigan, I guess near Alex Holderman, who's up at University of Michigan, right. and another one right. in, in Washington, right. D.C., to look at these super secret databases, and they turned out to be identical to all... Uh, what I think you told me uh, a database that was discovered by our friend Bev Harris at Black Box Voting back in 2002? Correct. It was identical to that Georgia database. It was identical to the Pima County, Arizona databases that are given out to be looked at by all the candidates for mm-hmm. public record. It was identical to the Marin County databases. It's, it's identical to Pitkin County, Jim's database. You go on and on. And, you know, all of these databases are just alike. They have the same structure. So the, the lie that the, the Secretary of State's office told the court was just amazing, saying, no, ours is so very different. And they used that to try to delay, 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 
so that we could not look at the data in time for the hearing that we had on Thursday and Friday. You know, eventually we got some Mm -hmm. of the data, but just a small fraction, but without the time to look at it, Brad. And, And so they were successful. Their, their lives, at least in the short term, paid off. Were you able to because raise the point to the judge that they had lied about uh, yes. the difference in the day? Well, how, yes. What was her reaction to this? I wouldn't think she would look you on know, that kind she managed to stay very calm and focused about this and um, has not said much. Um, but she knows, and we have already told the judge, mm-hmm. that we will be filing motions for sanctions. Mm. Um, and we would expect some of our exorbitant cost um, for doing all of this to be repaid by the by the defendants. And it's worth- and so that's. It, kind it, of a fight yet to come. It, it's it's worth noting here uh, and underscoring, especially for those who just tuned in, the defendants here who lied about this is the state of Georgia, which is now run by Governor Brian Kemp, who was until last November the state secretary of state overseeing these voting systems for the past eight years. So in addition to lying about their databases, Marilyn Marks, there was also a fair amount of news over the past week or so that uh, and it sort of seemed like oldish news to me when I'd read it since we had covered it on this show about a year or so ago that the state had actually destroyed evidence that you guys had specifically sought just days after you originally filed this lawsuit that included a computer server with the database of voters and voting system passwords that had been exposed on the Internet for at least at least six months prior to the 2016 presidential election. Those uh, servers were destroyed even after you filed your case. But then there was also news that additional material uh, has since been destroyed by the state of Georgia. Do I have do I have that right? And if so, what material is that? Sadly, you do, Brad. And um, we filed a brief with the court on Thursday when when the court session began. Mm-hmm. We filed a brief on what's called spoliation, and that means a destruction of evidence. And what we were explaining to the court, because it, although it was old news to you, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't yet the time to present it to the court back mm-hmm. when you first began to learn of it. Right. So we were able to present it to the court in the form of Look, Your Honor, we are attempting to get a preliminary injunction here. One of the one of the reasons, one of the things that a judge has to weigh in a preliminary injunction is what is your likelihood of success on the merits in the end mm-hmm. by the by the time you get to the final trial. And we were telling her, look, one of the factors you will have to consider, Your Honor, at the at the end of this trial is the fact that they have destroyed evidence. Let us show you what they've done mm. as you make your interim preliminary consideration. So we went through, Brad, the, the, the servers that you just talked about, mm-hmm. that the Secretary of State destroyed their two primary servers, the first one four days after we sued them, and the next one a few hours after the case was assigned to uh, Judge Totenberg. Mm. And then from there, we asked them to start preserving memory cards, uh, internal memories of the voting machines themselves, and they just completely defied every request. Even the judge told them to go to the FBI where there was a partial copy of one of the servers and be sure that that thing did not disappear, be sure it was retained, 
and they even refused to do that. Just didn't do it, although the court ordered them to back in December of 2017. So they mm. they have time after time after time, and we probably have 20 letters to them mm-hmm. saying, please quit destroying the evidence. Please stop it. Please quit overwriting the memory cards. Please quit overwriting the machine's memories. If you... You know, if you need them, then first make an image, first make a copy. And they have refused at every turn. And it's like, nope, we're the state. This is what we want to do. And um, nobody can stop. And I cannot imagine. That's pretty much been their attitude. Yeah, and I can't imagine that is going to fly with Judge Totenberg, frankly. There was also, if I'm remembering this correctly, uh, at the time when it came out that there... uh, that this database had been available online and uh, with the you know the, the voting system passwords on it and everything else. It was discovered by an independent researcher who notified the state, and then six months later he found that it was still there. The state had t- t- taken no action about it. And just before the, I guess it was the just before the 2018 election, Brian Kemp decided to turn that around and say that, Someone has been trying to hack into our system, but we stopped them and we're calling the FBI. First, am I remembering the timeline correctly? That was right before the 2018 election, right? When they claimed to be calling the FBI. Well, you know, the time he, that that was, um, that was actually right, that was right after the 2017 election. Oh, okay. Um, You're thinking of the voter, the voter registration database. Okay. Um, And yes, and so we've got two different times that this happened. First was when Logan Lamb found right. it, found the servers wide open, mm-hmm. and they called the FBI on him when he reported to them, right. to, to the Secretary of State's office, look, you all have a problem. So what did they do? They tried to get the FBI to go after him. Right. Then the Democratic Party was, they, the Secretary of State tried to slam them mm-hmm. right before the 2018 election, as you, as you were pointing mm-hmm. out, when a voter went on to the voter registration website and realized that he could learn and change other people's voter registration. He was just kind of wide open there. So he reported the Democratic Party saying, is this right? Right. They then contacted like um, uh, Professor DeMillo, who I Uh think you're going to talk to soon, and, um, and other researchers to say, this is what we're looking at. Are we wrong here? And so when our attorneys reported this to, because they contacted us, mm-hmm. and, and so um, the, when our attorneys reported the problem mm-hmm. to the Secretary of State's attorneys that Saturday in the afternoon, it mm-hmm. was right before the election, rather than going to look to see what the problem was, they turned around and made press releases blaming the Democratic Party calling them hackers and saying that the Democratic Party was trying to hack the voting system. And he published that in in, in public articles. And, and in the bargain, they called the FBI, if I'm remembering this, and they have since now said, well, the FBI came in and took a, uh, a an image of the database, and when, so uh, there's a lot of suits uh, involved in all this, so forgive me if I'm getting it confused, but at some point, 
after they had destroyed certain material, there was uh, a response, well, we can go to the FBI and get their version since they took a copy of it. You don't have to worry that that server, that material has been deleted. But then we've recently learned that the state actually never did go to the FBI to get copies right. of that material that you need in your case? That's right. But now that goes back to the Logan Lamb. That was that was during the Logan Lamb time. And gotcha. um yes, they never they disobeyed the court's order and you will find that in our brief that we filed. They disobeyed the court's order and did not go to the FBI to try to retain it. Why has the state just disobeyed court orders, not attempted to save these records? I think it speaks for itself. They do not want these records to exist. They are not even taking the smallest amount of care. I got to get to a break here shortly, Marilyn, uh, but I want to come back and ask you about this new system now that they are, uh, Georgia is pushing for. Uh, but before that, in, in speaking with some folks who had attended the uh, those marathon hearings uh, last week, I understand there was a bit of a stir when it came up uh, under questioning of one of the uh, one of the witnesses from the state, uh, sort of an, an admission that the Georgia Secretary of State's office does not even do the programming for their own ballots, their own ballot definitions for its own system that, in fact, if I understand this correctly, there are outsiders, three outsiders. I think they might be contractors or something from ES&S, the, the company that currently uh, uh, services the current Diebold machines, that these outsiders actually do all of the programming for all of the ballots for the entire state of Georgia and that they work out of their garage or something. Am I understanding that correctly? Can you confirm that it from the hearings? Yes, and it was just shocking. We had just taken the deposition of the fellow who was on the witness stand, mm-hmm. Michael Barnes, who's in charge of the Secretary of State's um, ballot operations. Mm-hmm. And he had told us it was his employees who do the programming of the machines, what's called the ballot building, and, and setting up the tabulations. His they, state employees. They program all the machines. Right. They were his employees. That's what he told us in the deposition. Right. We subsequently got a written contract after his deposition that told us the opposite. So we asked him on the witness stand, you know, tell us about who is it that, it, that programmed the 2018 or, or it's programming ballots. And mm-hmm. he told us about these three people who are out of their homes or garages or car or wherever they're working with no real security. They are the ones that have these databases that are programming every single machine in the state with no oversight, no public ability to check what's going on, and with such an insecure home system that, of course, it's open to the bad guys who may want to come in and and do bad things. It was totally shocking. On their home Wi-Fi... ESNS uh, employees, third-party contractors, not the state, on their home Wi-Fi, uh, doing this programming for the state. And mind you, uh, Marilyn, this this while ESNS insisted that you guys spend thousands and thousands of dollars to set up safe rooms for your own experts to examine these super-secret databases, right? Exactly right. These are exactly the same databases that they were making us sign these enormous confidentiality agreements, set up all these safe rooms, take, you know, have couriers fly 
and hand these CDs off in person because they were so super secret. And it turns out we've got three people working out of their garages. And by, know, and by um, the way, have you figured? Yeah, have you figured out if those three people working out of their garages when they program the ballots for the state of Georgia, if they have uh, super secret couriers hand deliver these things, or if they just send them <laughs> via email, unsecured email? And I, because I bet they do. I bet they just ship them uh, as an email attachment. Do you know? Well, we they they he claimed that they hand delivered, uh-huh. but it will be interesting to see what the the discovery documents show yeah. on that. But one of the other surprises probably happened when when the attorney said to them, "Well, so what percentage of the machines and databases did the did these three contractors build for 2018?" Mm-hmm. And the guy says. A hundred percent. So the 2018 elections were 100 percent outsourced to three people operating in a garage. (sighs) Okay, then. Yeah, not a problem at all. And you know what? What's most uh, maddening about this, Marilyn, is I suspect Georgia is not the only state where this happens. I've uh, spoken with other folks in other jurisdictions around the country where they basically they hire contractors, outside contractors who could be anybody to do this programming with really no oversight whatsoever. I have to take a quick break, uh, Marilyn. I do want to come back for just a few uh, short minutes to ask you about this new system, because on Monday, as you alluded, the state of Georgia has finally announced who is going to uh, be the vendor of this brand new 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen system that is supposed to be in place for the presidential elections next year. Take a quick break. We'll come back with Marilyn Marks. Our hero from coalitionforgoodgovernance.org. Right after this break, I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Georgia Georgia Oh Georgia The whole day through Welcome back. It's the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, on Monday morning, the Secretary of State of Georgia announced that the state has now chosen its new system to replace the crappy hackable Uh, 20-year-old Diebold touchscreen voting system statewide. They have chosen the Democracy Suite system made by a Canadian firm named Dominion Voting, which took over parts of Diebold's assets when that company's election system venture was finally put out of our misery a few years ago. The uh, new system is, yes, another 100% unverifiable touchscreen computer system, a so-called ballot-marking device 
that prints the voters' selections onto a piece of paper, which is then tabulated by an optical scan computer, all instead of hand-marked paper ballots. I'm speaking with Marilyn Marks, who is stewing, uh, stewing, she is also stewing, but suing to yeah. stop <laughs> to stop the use of the uh, 20-year-old uh, unverifiable D-bold touchscreen systems and move to a hand-marked paper ballot system. But Georgia really, really wants to stick with their touchscreens. Marilyn, uh, according to the document on this new system released today by Georgia, uh, I'd like to get your response to their claims here. They put out a frequently asked questions document about this new uh, democracy suite from Dominion Voting. And the question, why is the why is this the best system from Georgia? The answer, ballot marking devices or BMDs offer reliability and assurance, balancing the need for both security and accessibility in the voting process. BMDs have proven to, to reduce the rate of undervotes, overvotes and stray marked votes in elections. They can specifically alert voters if they have skipped or missed a ballot selection, ensuring that all voting choices are complete. The system also provides full accessibility for people with disabilities and or language or literacy challenges, allowing all voters to privately and independently cast a ballot using the same system. BMDs also produce paper ballots for auditing and reduce paper volumes overall. Your response to the uh, to the singing praise for the B- new BMD systems coming to Georgia. Well, you had it right when you said I'm stewing. <laughs> it is so outrageous. Every word that you just read, Brad, it's soap to wash out your mouth. It is ridiculous. <laughs> These systems are not one bit better than the DREs that we have today. They're just because they spit out a piece of paper that has a barcode on it that becomes the vote, the official vote that a voter cannot read. So a voter is having to cast a ballot that she cannot read. Yeah, there is a list that is supposed to, that is supposed to match what's in that that QR code, that mm-hmm. barcode, mm-hmm. but nobody knows whether it does. And the problem is people don't know how to check, they don't check, and it requires a, a photographic memory to be able to remember everything on the ballot and figure out if it is on that list, even if people could check. What we know is that in And research project after research project, people cannot remember everything on the ballot and check their votes, as well as when errors are introduced in the research project. Mm -hmm. 60-plus percent of the time, voters think they made the error rather than the machine, and or else they don't detect the error. Therefore, these are not verifiable ballots. This is just garbage paper, yep. a waste of trees that's being, that is, that's being spit out of the machines, and it's electronic voting with a sham content. Yeah, and... We should just call it what it is. And the problem is, it's not just Georgia. It is Los Angeles County. It is the entire state of Delaware. It is the city of Philadelphia. It is counties in Ohio and Kansas and Texas who are all moving to these systems despite 
you know, so many warnings about uh, following the 2016 election, despite the fact that in both the House uh, and the Senate, Democrats at least have been pushing for hand marked paper ballots for every voter. And yet we are uh, we are moving in the wrong direction. I wish I had more time to talk about this because it, it drives me nuts. And the uh, I will link to the. Uh, uh, to the to the frequently asked questions from the state of Georgia, which in just include one lie after another. And if they're willing to lie actually in court under oath, imagine what they're willing to do to their own people. Uh, Marilyn, uh, I've said this before, but it can't be said enough. I think that what you guys are doing at the Coalition for Good Governance is the most important battle in the nation to finally bring an end to the scourge of unverifiable touchscreen computer voting, it, which is now expanding, as I said, before 2020. Uh, I want to note you are not funded, as far as I know, by any of the political parties or the big nonprofit <laughs> groups out there. Uh, but by, uh, No, I'm afraid not. But, it's from Nichols and Dimes, folks like your listeners, and your listeners have been great, Brad. They've been good. terrific in supporting what we're doing, so thank you. Well, I want to point people, continue to point people, because this is expensive and they're making it expensive on purpose, uh, pointing people mm-hmm. to coalitionforgoodgovernance.org, where you can get more information on this case and, of course, uh, consider donating to this effort. You can also find uh, Marilyn Marks, and I really recommend her Twitter feed. She is Marilyn R. Marks, the number one. Marilyn R. Marks, that's Marks, M A R K S, like, you know, hand marks on a ballot. Marilyn R. Marks Mm -hmm. won on uh, Twitter, and uh, this uh, fight will continue. Marilyn, thanks for uh, keeping us updated, and I look forward to the next thrilling chapter as this moves forward. (laughs) When when will we hear from the judge, by the way? Because I know that this has got to be done quickly at this point. Right. Oh, in the next few days, I think. Um, um, Tomorrow on, um, let's see, we will will be getting uh, a response from the state on the... um, um, the spoliation, the destruction of evidence. Mm-hmm. So that'll be another n- interesting chapter. But we think she will rule within the next several days. So, Brad, thank you so much for scrutinizing Georgia. It needs your scrutiny, <laughs> and uh, we will keep you posted. Thanks, Marilyn. Marilyn Marks of Coalition for Good dot org. Okay, and we do have to get out as well. My thanks <laughs> yes. to our, sorry, I know. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and timekeeper, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free. Share it with friends and family alike, and even enemies. You can download it at bradblog.com for free. Thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to support our efforts to do what we do over your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog, and that is it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I hope. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.